0: So Jesus, um, I just thank you, I thank you for tonight, I thank you for every person that's here, and I pray that you speak to us, and I pray that you awaken hunger in our hearts for your presence, I pray that you awaken that deep and innate homesickness that we have to be one with you, and I pray that it is not just stirred in this time, God, but that it, it you do, you create space you create a capacity for us to want you like we never have before and that it will sustain us and it will mark us not just for uh this day or this week or this sermon series but literally lord for our lives with you i pray that in jesus name amen uh, there's a guy named leonard ravenhill anybody heard of him yeah one person two <laughs> two all right sweet uh, he's an amazing man of God and really a prophetic voice uh, in the earth. He's not around anymore. Is that correct? I believe he's gone. Um, bless you, Leonard. <laughs> he says that no church is greater than its prayer life. And every, if you, there's a, Actually, side note, if you want to listen to some good stuff on YouTube, there's two videos I'd highly recommend that you listen to this week. One is called The Role of Prayer in Spiritual Awakening. It's by a guy named Jay Edwin Orr. He's a church historian specifically on American revivalism. It's amazing. Um, and then the second, I would say listen to uh, No Man is Greater Than His Prayer Life by Leonard Ravenhill. They will put a fire in your soul. But he says no church is greater than his prayer life. He actually says no man, no woman is greater than his or her prayer life. And every great awakening is actually preceded by great prayer. And if we're to be a great church, which is what my desire is to do, I don't think anyone ever tries to do something half-hearted or mediocre. We're trying to be a great church. We have to be a people of great prayer. Amen? All right. I'm going to have like eight of you saying amen by the end of this message. Right now, we got two. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, I was at the, I was still getting in and you earlier this week and they were looking at me like they were dead at the beginning and about halfway through, man, they were laughing, they were rolling. I was like, okay, so I know I can get you. So I'm just going to keep saying cheesy jokes until you laugh or something. But if we're going to be a great church, we have to be a people of great prayer and great prayer always precedes great awakening. And awakening, revival, there's all these terms we use uh, for God doing a great thing in the earth. And so I actually want to talk about revival specifically and define it before I talk about prayer. So what is revival? I would define it as this. It's God's intervention in the affairs of mankind. It's when heaven comes to earth. And if you want to read, there's a lot of stuff out there where you can read about these revivals that have taken place. And I'm just going to talk through like three, maybe four that have really impacted me or at least inspire me just to try to get your your appetite wet a little bit. There is a man in Wales named Evan Roberts. He's 26 years old at the time, and he began seeking the Lord in fervent prayer with a group of young 20s. Uh, they were he was in seminary, studying to go into the ministry. And he had become so consumed. He was spending hours and hours and hours into the late morning, uh, late late hours of the night, early morning um, prayer, just praying all the time. And he began to hear this voice telling him that there's an awakening coming to your nation, there's an awakening. And he didn't know, honestly, if it was God or if, he didn't know what the voice was. He'd never heard something like that until eventually, there came a day where he couldn't study for school because he was so stirred um, by prayer and he kept hearing this voice and it was telling him you need to go back to your hometown and you need to preach a message to them he didn't even know what the message was so he goes to the president of his school like the principal says I'm hearing this voice telling me I need to go home and preach to my church and he said I don't know if that's God or if that's the devil and the principal said I don't think the devil says anything like that you should go home and preach so he goes home and tells his preacher his pastor at his, at his hometown church, Little Church uh, in Wales. It says, uh, God has a message for me to speak. And the pastor didn't know really what he thought of that. So he said, well, you can talk at the end of the prayer meeting on like a Wednesday night or something. So uh, and he, they did the whole prayer meeting. Then he let him talk if people wanted to stay. He got up after a two-hour prayer meeting and he began speaking. And it was this message about repentance. And the people were so stirred. They said, can you come back and speak next night? And he said, Yes. So he preached the next night. The church was packed. They said, can you come back and preach the next night? Came back the next night. God was there so heavy that nobody wanted to leave. It was 4.30 in the morning and people were begrudgingly going home. Got in the newspapers. God's doing remarkable things. Literally five months later, 100,000 people had turned to Jesus to the point that the society literally flipped on its head. The police stations The police had no jobs anymore because there was nobody in the courts. The judges had no one to convict. There were no murders. There were no rapes. There were no nothing. The mines actually shut down and weren't operating for a long amount of time because they had used swear words to speak to their donkeys. And they weren't cussing anymore because they'd been so transformed by the work of God that they had to retrain the horses to use different language. Literally, the police... They called the police, they interviewed the police. You can read this. J. Edwin Orr, he has all types of stuff on this. The police said, We don't have jobs anymore because there's nothing to do. The only things we did was to take care of crime, which there isn't any, and to to handle the crowds at the soccer games. But now nobody goes to the soccer games, they just go to the church. He says, But thankfully, we have four three voice quartet or four voice quartets, so the churches have us come and sing at the church. That's all we do. Literally. In five months, 100,000 people turned to the Lord because a 26 year old and a group of young people began praying and seeking the face of God. In that, then sprung and started. Americans started going over all over the world. Started getting touched by the same awakening. They came back in 1905 in Portland, Oregon. There was a pact signed by all the tr- by all the department stores and grocery stores and any business in the city of Portland. They all signed a non competition clause. From 11 to 2 p.m. every single weekday, they shut down for afternoon prayer, and everyone would go and pray for three hours in the city. There was such. There was a time, uh, Manhattan. There was Manhattan businessmen that. Got impacted by Wells went and started a prayer meeting that began such a movement of prayer that at one point an, a, a reporter for the newspaper went to try to see if he could count how many people were praying in the lunchtime hour in Manhattan and they couldn't get to all of the meetings before the time would run up. There was like over fifty thousand people they believed businessmen in Manhattan, come on, praying every single day. That's insane, right? That's a great awakening, you know. And God and that's where. In a, Dude, that fires me up, right? Um, there's another man. Uh, this, this, I read his autobiography. It's a man named John Lake. Uh, and this was really one of the most stirring things that I, uh, I'd ever read. It was my first exposure to what I would kind of call like revival literature. I, rose, I was raised in the church, but no one ever told me about revival. Didn't know this happened. It was news to me. Uh, but this man, uh, he's a businessman, very wealthy. He had an encounter with God where he got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he started seeing healings take place that led him eventually to leave, His he was a very wealthy uh, insurance guy, left and went to South Africa. And within about five years, they saw 100,000 salvations and countless healings. And it got to the point that in this guy's meetings, he couldn't stand and wave at people when they walked into the church because they would get so overcome with the power of God, that would literally fall on their faces and the doors would pile up with people and they could not even get into the sanctuary because God was moving so powerfully. Um, They were so on fire for the gospel that at one point they didn't have money because there was just people going out into the bush of Africa preaching. They had a meeting because they were saying, basically, we're going to starve and people are going to die if we we keep continuing this work. And so all the pastors, there were dozens of them, came. They had a meeting one night, and they were trying to decide, do we keep going and preaching the gospel and seeing this revival continue, or do we stop? Because people are probably going to die because we have no money. And they asked John to leave, and then they called him back in the room, and they said, we have decided uh, that we are all going back out to preach, but under two stipulations. They said, one, that you serve us communion, and we take it to the death, saying that we'll give our lives for the gospel, and two, that you will be the one that buries us if we die. And literally, he said within three months, he buried 12 of them, but the gospel continued to preach. Like this was like a move of God. Then he ended up giving back to the states, Um, Because people say, oh, that happened in Africa. Came back to the States in the early 1900s, probably around 1909, probably in the 1915 area. He ended up moving up to Spokane. And Spokane, uh, within five years of his ministry in Spokane, they saw 100,000 medically documented healings. And the Wall Street Journal titled Spokane, the healthiest city in America. People were skeptical of this, so they, they did a big comprehensive study, and they were going to do an investigation to see if they were making this stuff up. After three months of the investigation, they came back to his ministry and said, you haven't been telling half of what's been taking place. The investigation's dropped. Like, they're, you know, interviewing all the people to get the case-by-case accounts. Um, powerful, powerful, powerful move of God's spirit. He's buried up there in Spokane still. And there is a ministry still kind of reminiscent of what he's doing. It's the Spokane Healing Rooms. It's birthed out of this man, John Lake, who died 80, 90 years ago. Um, Bill Bright. Anybody know Bill Bright? I know Mark does. Yeah, amazing, amazing man of God. He was in Fuller Seminary. I don't know when he was there, a long time ago. And he had a vision. You can read about this online. You can also read about people that think he's a heretic still to this day, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, but he had a vision of God. He, didn't, he wasn't supposed to create a church. He was supposed to create something that was the church but not in the church, which is now known as para-church ministry. That was extremely controversial in the day. That was birthed by this man's vision. And uh, he started Campus Crusade for Christ that has literally seen millions of people Come to Jesus because he obeyed it and created this. And they started seeing a revival movement across the college campuses of America that's then jumped across the pond and gone to all these nations and the Jesus film and all these amazing things. Why? Because one man got the heart of God. Revival sprung. Billy Graham revival. We all know that. Um, last one I'll talk about is just the one that I, I've personally been a part of, um, which is uh, Heidi, Heidi and Roland Baker, Iris Ministries in, in Mozambique, and they've seen over 100,000 churches planted in the last 10 years simply by a move of God's spirit, and I was with them, I did it, I watched how it happens. They go and they preach the simple gospel, and the blind see, and the deaf ears get open, and they plant a church, and they raise up pastors, and they're seeing a nation literally transform and set on fire for the name of Jesus, and it's unbelievable, right? Specifically, what moved me about that is I saw it with my own eyes, and when I saw it with my own eyes, I knew that I could never again believe that, that one man with God is not a majority. I, never, I, I, I knew, as I saw, two people that said yes changed a nation, and they're seeing millions of people come to the Lord, and I saw thousands of them that have come to the Lord because of their yes, And it messed me up because I knew, okay, I can't make a cop-out excuse of why I'm too small, my faith's too weak, I'm not enough, I'm just a man, da-da-da-da-da. No. God wants to use his people and one man with him, one man, one woman who travails with God in prayer has what it takes to see transformation come to a city or come to a nation. Amen. So we have enough firepower in here to do it all over the world, right? It was only 12. It's only 12 that started this movement that has us here on a Saturday night. Worshiping Jesus. So why do we desire this? Why does this stir us? Uh, I believe it's because we are all homesick for one thing, and that's to be with, with our Father. We're made to be in heaven. And if we're really, if we get to that gut level real place, and we have it periodically, you know, when we'll have real powerful visitations with the Lord, there's something in us that awakens this cry, this is what I'm longing for, this is what I'm made for, and I believe uh, that the cry of every revivalist, the cry is, I want to be home, I want to go home, so that's why, you know, it's important, and that's why it's powerful, and that's why it's, there's a convicting nature to it, because it's a deep longing, probably the deepest longing is to be with God and to see him, and that's what revival is, we're seeing him come, we're seeing his kingdom come come to our world so what does revival look like because i really didn't go into the dynamics of what it actually looked like in each one of those but it was different and this is the answer to that doesn't look like anything there's no form the only thing that's predictable about revival is that it won't look like the last one it's always different it's changing it's evolving it's organic and because of that it is not what you expect it to be so oftentimes what god is doing is actually resisted and it's offensive and we kind of push it away because it's like ooh. I don't know what that is. And that's the point. God doesn't live in a box, and he's always doing a new thing. And oftentimes, it's not new in the sense that it's new like he's never done it, but he hasn't done it in maybe 500 years. He's like, yeah, I kind of feel like going back to that. I'm going to do that again. We're like, oh, whoa, I've never seen that. He's like, yeah, you've only been here 26 years or 35 years or even 80 years. He's like, 80 years isn't that long to me, right? He's been doing this church thing for a long time. So revival does not look like anything specific. It just looks like God, right? And so my heart really is as we, as we birth this and create this culture is that we are prepared as a people to recognize what God's doing and join him in his work in the earth, Amen? We don't want God to come join what we're doing. We want to join him in what he's doing. Because I have a lot more faith that his work is going to happen than I do what my idea is going to happen. Right? It's just a lot easier that way. The church, unfortunately, is notorious for kind of mixing and confusing the role of church and kingdom. Right? God's big work in the earth is to see his kingdom come, which is revival. The inbreaking of his kingdom, right? God's intervention into the way of mankind. That's his big work. He wants to build his kingdom. The church, yes, he wants to build the church because the church is his chosen instrument to bring the kingdom, right? Is this making sense? I was disillusioned growing up because when people started telling me, you're called to preach and you're called to be to the church, I was like, no, that's not me. That's not for me. That doesn't excite me. There's nothing amazing about that. It was not until I had a revelation of what the kingdom was because I had never seen the kingdom. I'd just been in church, just church. And I thought church was great, but it didn't inspire me until I saw the kingdom. And then I realized, oh, that's why you're calling me to the church because the church is meant to bring the kingdom, right? And sometimes I think we, th- we act as if like God is building the everlasting church, the church that will not perish, No, that's that's not what it says. He's building an everlasting kingdom, right? And he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because the church is the instrument to bring the kingdom. Church is the instrument to bring revival into the earth. So why doesn't it always happen? Why don't we always see revival? If you turn your Bibles to Acts uh, 14, I'm going to read some verses. Sorry, Acts 13. I'm going to start in verse 1. So, this is a uh, the New Covenant, New, New Testament rather, church uh, at Antioch. I'm just going to read a few verses. This is the church that sent Paul out on his first missionary journey. So, it says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, when they'd fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away." They were ministering unto the Lord, right? So there's the leaders of the Antioch church, and they were ministering unto the Lord. The church mixes its priority sometimes. Pastors miss their priority sometimes, and we think, and oftentimes we think, what is the job of the church? It's to love people. It's to pastor people. It's to minister to people. That's not the first priority of the church. The first ministry of every believer is to minister unto the Lord. When we mix that priority and it becomes people-oriented, we become a church that's earthly-minded. We're not called to be earthly-minded. Colossians 3 says, set your minds on the things above where Christ is because that's where your life is. Don't be earthly-minded, be heavenly-minded. A heavenly-minded church recognizes there's a connection. They are ministering unto Jesus Right, and then you're empowered from that place to minister unto people. It's not that we're not called to minister unto people, but when we start doing that, we mix our priorities, and the church kind of becomes about church. It comes to be about like the social club, and let's take care of the kids, and let's take care of the teenagers, and let's take care of the you know the older adults, and let's have the younger adults, and let's have the young marrieds, and it kind of becomes all about ministering to people. And the church kind of acts like we're building the church for the sake of the church so that the church will be amazing because the church is the hope of the world. Jesus didn't come preaching the message of the church. He only used the word like twice. He came preaching the message of the kingdom. And when we fulfill our first ministry unto the Lord, our eyes are fixed on the kingdom. So, yes, we are ministering unto people. That is so good. Oh, my gosh, we need that. But, but we are ministering first unto the Lord. So that brings this kingdom perspective to everything that we're doing so that we fulfill our mandate that we are the instrument to bring the inbreaking of his kingdom to earth. Amen? Because if we're all about the earth, we're not fixed on what is revival. It's heaven coming to earth. It's not like making the best out of what we have. Amen? You following me? So, what does prayer have to do with all of this? Everything. Everything. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter seven. Ministering unto the Lord is prayer. They're praying and fasting. This is the most successful missionary duo, what I just read in Acts 13, ever, right? Apostle Paul is the best missionary ever. And that came because they were ministering unto the Lord in prayer. They were intimate with Him. They knew how to fulfill that ministry, it brings a release. 2 Chronicles 7. My people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I'll hear and I will heal their land. I don't believe the problem with America is abortion. I don't believe the problem with America is politics. I don't believe the problem with America is is class and economic warfare. I don't think the problem with America is racism. I don't think the problem... I don't think the problem is a lack of morality. I don't think the problem is the legalization of marijuana. I don't think the problem with America is all these things that we like to point fingers on outside the church and inside the church. I think the problem with America is a disobedient church. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their ways and repent of their sins, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. Why is our land not healed? Why is there not a revival? Why? Were more people praying in Portland and Manhattan and and, in Azusa and all in Kane City or Cane Ridge, Kentucky, in Pensacola, Florida, and Brownsville, and all these places where there's been revival. Why were more people praying a hundred years ago in this nation than today? There's a lack of prayer. There's a wholesale lack of prayer in the church. We don't we don't obey this. Our lives. We do not travail with God in prayer. We don't have great prayer. There's so many people. So many people they sit across from me and they say, I just don't really know how to pray. It's kind of mediocre. It's okay. I should pray more. I should pray more. Like I hear that time and time and time and time and time and time again. And you know what? It's not just from the people that come and then go work and have their busy lives. I hear it from pastors. I've heard pastors from their mouth say, I'm too busy to pray. That was probably the most shocking thing I ever heard. I would have never imagined that before I was in ministry. Then I got into ministry, and I've seen it. People get swirling in all the things of life. And we just kind of drift, and pretty soon it's like, oh, I prayed 10 minutes before bed. I read my Bible for five minutes. Yeah, I, I thought about praying. I <laughs> had that one, right? I'm sure we've been convicted like, oh, I'll pray for you. We never do it. We don't have his heart. We don't truly humble ourselves and get poor and turn and repent. We don't know what that means. We don't, we don't know how to connect with the heart of God. It can be bland. It can be boring. It can be intellectual. We have all these mindsets about prayer of how hard it is and how boring it is and all these yada, 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 yada. When prayer is communion, with the most joyful amazing person that ever lived you know we get more excited about going to Disneyland than we do to be in the presence of Jesus and I don't know why because he's he's a lot more than Disneyland right we we would say this but we don't know this right we don't know that we haven't spent the time to get there we haven't done the work we haven't dug and we haven't pulled out the weeds we haven't we don't, we're don't. we not there, right? We're not there. And I don't think I'm just talking at all you. I'm talking about as a church, as a nation. God says you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Not part of it, not a piece of it, not some of it. Like that's basically saying if you make seeking me paramount, You will find me. Paramount's a political term. I'm sure Trump has a few issues on his agenda that are paramount. They must be taken care of. They must be addressed. They're what the administration of his government rest upon the paramount issues that he is bringing before his advisors and everybody it is it is where they're putting all their effort all their energy all their focus upon the paramount issues to governing a nation it's very clear in the bible what's paramount it is to seek the face of of God and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all their passion and everything that you have. That's the paramount issue of your life. People that shake history are people that know how to pray. No man, no woman, no church is greater than his or her or their prayer life. Amen? I wanna be someone who knows how to pray. And I want us to be a people that know how to pray. Not because we have to, not because it's condemning, because we know him, right? So what do we do? That's always the question I ask when I'm stirred, when I'm convicted, when anything. What do I do? What do we do? I'm going to read two passages that I think are real practical. And turn to Mark 6. Got your Bibles. I'm going to read one verse out of Mark 6, and then I'm going to read a couple out of Luke 3. But turn to Mark 6. We'll read that one together. Mark 6, verse 46. Jesus has just had a long day of ministry, a long day at work. Sometimes we spiritualize ministry too much. You know, being a pastor, it's just work. It's a lot of emails, administration, paperwork, IRS, this, that. It's not that spiritual. It doesn't feel very holy. It feels like work. Jesus was doing a lot of work. Had a long day at work. Immediately, I'll start at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. I like that. After bidding them farewell. Bye. No more ministry. No, no, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm done. Drawing a boundary with people. Why? Because he's showing that he has priority. There's something more paramount than the ministry, than the people. It is the Father is communion. Sorry, no more. I have a boundary up. You know, if we say yes to everything, you're going to say no to the most important things. That's just how it works. If you just kind of drift your life and just kind of let your life be governed by people asking and requesting and wanting, you the most important things you won't have time for and prayer will get chucked out the door. Guaranteed. Ministry doesn't matter for a pastor. Doesn't matter if you're a businessman. Doesn't matter if you're a lawyer. Doesn't matter if you're a teacher. Doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom. If you say yes to everything, prayer, you will not be a person of prayer because you won't have time. We have to say no. John Maxwell, great leader, he says if you uh, said powerful people, they 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 choose, they direct, they 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 make their time, they make, they set their schedules, they choose their meetings. He said passive people just kind of respond to everything that's kind of happened to them. Well, that person likes me. So I'm going to go be with them. Oh, they want something. I'm going to give it to them. No boundaries. Jesus has boundaries. He's a powerful person. And right here, he's making a boundary. No, no more. I need to be with my father. And he actually carves out space for communion with the Lord. We have to be powerful enough and decisive enough to actually carve out space, lonely space, where it's just you and God. Lonely space is wilderness. He's actually showing, I have value for the wilderness. Yes, he lived in the midst of the people better than anyone ever has. But he always created space, protected space with the Father, communion, bidding them farewell. We have to be able to bid people farewell and say yes to the Father. I have felt this many times, and many times I've said yes, and many times I've said no to the Lord. But I felt his prompting. I'll be in the midst of a social situation and I will feel you need to withdraw and you need to come with me on the mountain. You need to come to the wilderness. Get away from people. You need to be connected to me. Jesus did this all the time. Read the gospels all the time. After long days at work, early in the morning, they're finding him praying, 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 praying. We should be the same, yeah? Yeah. All right, Luke 3, I'm going to link these verses, but they both have some cool insights. Um, I'm not going to read them because it's a longer story, but it's John the Baptist. And in Luke 3, it says, John, you know, when he's younger, he goes to the wilderness, and he kind of has this very aesthetic lifestyle out in the wilderness. But again, he's in a secluded place. And it says that the word of the Lord, in Luke 3, it says, The word of the Lord came to him, and he began to preach a message of Repentance. A baptism of repentance, actually. And John is in the wilderness, right? So he's actually a voice crying in the wilderness, and he's actually calling people into the wilderness to be baptized, which just means immersed in repentance. Repentance means to change the way you think, literally. That's what it means, to change the way that you think. So it's actually a, a shifting of how you think second chronicles what does it say if my people will humble themselves and turn from their ways then I'll heal them I'll hear them and I'll heal their land it's the same concept here there's some repentance is this turning so john is this voice in the wilderness saying come and be immersed in this repentance, come and change the way that you think. Get out of society. Get out of all these voices and all this noise. Come away to the wilderness so that you can find repentance. You can change the way that you think. And this is was his message. I'm one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. He was literally preparing people to receive Jesus, to receive revival incarnate. Right? And you know who rejected Jesus? Who? The Pharisees. Did the Pharisees go and get baptized by John? No. They came and they questioned him. They argued with him. Who's giving you this authority to baptize people? They didn't come and get it. The people that received Jesus were the people that came to the wilderness, were baptized by him, immersed into repentance in their hearts. Because Romans 12 says... Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something happens in the wilderness. When you come to the wilderness, you get immersed into this repentance. You start changing the way you think. When you start changing the way you think, you start becoming transformed. And when you're transformed heart, you know how to recognize the Lord when his day of visitation approaches. Amen? It's the poor in spirit. It's those that have gone, repented, changed, humbled themselves, that know how to pray. You learn how to pray in the wilderness. You learn how to pray in an isolated place. What about group prayer? Group prayer is great, but group prayer for me starts individual, where it's you and God alone. The great corporate prayer are when a bunch of people that have been doing that come together, and then it's this explosion. But you don't learn how to pray You can can learn in a group, but there's something cultivated by yourself that is not cultivated in a group. All right, where am I getting with all this? I believe Jesus is waiting in the secret place for you, for this church right now, this season. He's waiting in the secret place for you to come and find him in that wilderness, the prayer closet wilderness. You know, people say, I think one of the reasons that people have to go through wilderness seasons is because it is such a good gift that we reject because culture says that's bad. So I don't want wilderness. I want, I want craziness. I want to be busy all the time doing something. It's because we actually don't have eyes to see the daily invitation to just come and spend this time in this space. So God's like, all right, I'm gonna have to rip you out of it and take you away. For a little longer, it's gonna be a little more difficult because you keep saying no every single day. It's a gift. Jesus isn't being punished. Go to the mountain, Jesus. You can laugh. It's not that. You know what I mean? You've been you didn't do ministry very good today. Come away alone, so I can punish you. That's what we act like sometimes. No, it's a gift. He can't wait to get away. But if Jesus is there. He's waiting. He's waiting for us to come. He's drawing him to us to Himself. And I feel like in this season, like I feel like God's like, yeah, you be the voice in the wilderness saying, "Come, come." So I'm I'm pleading, come away with Jesus. Come and carve out this space. Carve out. Make your your prayer closet your home, and invest time there. And, and, and cultivate relationship and press, press, press until you can get into the passion of your heart. People say, what's prayer supposed to look like? It's kind of like asking what revival is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like you and Jesus communing. So I would put the question back to you. What is prayer supposed to look like? I don't know, but it looks like you and the passion of your heart meeting the passion of His, and powerful things take place. It is an immersion into repentance. You will change. You will have new thoughts to think. You will have new perspective on your life. There will be such a deep and thorough transformation of you that people will look at you and say, What the heck is happening to you, man? How is that taking place? Like, what in the world? They don't know what to say. They don't know how to cognate it. They don't know how to put words to it. But people that begin to pray, it is the most recognized thing you ever see. And I could call out a few of you that I see it. And not to say that a few, most of you don't. I'm just saying I have insight to a few. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But please, please invest. Spend time. Seek. What does it look like? Make it paramount. Don't give up. And I believe that we'll see incredible fruitfulness come from that. It's the best journey you can do. It's the best, it's the best use of your time that you can do every day. We will, we will not wake up one day when we're dead and say, dang it, why did I give so much time to you? I heard a guy recently say, people say that there will be no tears in heaven. And he said, well, why does Revelation say that they'll, he'll wipe the tears from your eyes? And I've never thought about that before. He said, because when you stand at the judgment seat, you will have to take accountability for how you invested and used your life. And he said, I promise you there'll be great weeping for the many that said, I should have prayed. I was in South America earlier this year. I'll end with this. Man of God, he's actually a businessman, but he was a youth pastor for a little bit at this church that knows how to pray, probably unlike a church I've ever seen knows how to pray. It's Cali Columbia Church of the Nazarene. And uh, they've seen just a prayer movement explode. It's the prayer move, the 4 a.m. meeting that I always talk about. So, um, But this guy's the youth pastor, and part of his job was to host the guest speakers, and he inherited a ministry of about 100 kids that met on a Saturday night or something like that. And he said... Uh, in the first year of his ministry, uh, there was a guest speaker coming from Argentina, Puerto Rico, Argentina, maybe. He was a 13-year-old boy, and he was the speaker at the conference. So he's like, who the heck is this kid? He's like, so he's like, I'm kind of excited to see what this dude's all about, you know. So he said he picks him up from the airport. His kid's name is Alexander. said so they get to the house where he's staying, and he immediately grabs him by the hand and says, come pray with me. And he says, oh, okay, it's like eight in the morning. He so says the kid gets on his face, and he said, He's kind of sitting there flabbergasted for the next four hours as he watches this boy worship God and seek God and on his face, with it, then up on his hands, weeping, reading the Bible, hour after hour after hour. He said to the point where he's hungry. He says lunchtime. So he said, Alexander, let's go eat. So he said, Oh, okay, okay. So they go downstairs, they eat the food. He said, The second the kid finishes his meal, he grabs him and says, Come on. We must go pray. And for the next five hours following lunch, the same exact thing. Seeking the face of God. Praying. his faith. Worshiping. Said he's never seen anything like it. He said, it doesn't even sound like Jaime was praying. Sounds like Jaime was just watching Alexander pray. So to the point that it's like 6 o'clock, they got to get to the church. He says, Alexander, we've got to go. And he's like, okay, okay. So he gets in the shower, puts his clothes on. They get in the car and they're driving there. And he looks at him and says, what are you going to preach on? He's like, I don't know. I'm still trying to hear from Jesus. And he was going, this kid is crazy, right? So he gets to the, the event. It's probably a 1,000 people. It's a, it's a you know, bigger church at this time. It already The revival had already begun down there. And so the kid gets up, and he said, preaches for about 30 minutes a very boring sermon. So he was like sitting there like, I know all that. Nothing special. It's not even a good sermon. And he, uh, I think he was just reading different um, miracle stories in the Gospels. And then he said, okay. Uh, who believes what I just said? He said, and if, if you believe and you need healing, um, I'm going to pray for you. He so said the kid prayed for three minutes, said amen, and for the next three and a half hours, person after person after person came forward testifying of the healing of God. People out of wheelchairs, canes on the stage, eyeglasses gone because their eyes were healed. For three and a half hours, testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of the miraculous healing of God. So the next morning, he said, congratulations, Alexander. How did you do that? He's like, I see you have great power. And the boy said, do you always pray like that? And he said, the boy started sharing how, no, I don't always pray for 12 hours in a day. But there are days when the Lord says, pray for 12 hours. And I'll seek him for 12 hours. And when he tells me to give him time, I give him time. And he's literally being mentored and fathered in this moment by a young boy. Because out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, he establishes strength. It's not about age. It's not about position. It's not about hierarchy. In the kingdom, people that pray are the people with power. And God uses the people who pray to do powerful things in the earth. And we can learn from them. Amen. But he said, that kid left, but he was never the same. And he said, I began spending all this time in prayer. I began seeking the Lord like I never had. I began giving him hours a day. I began seeking him with a passion that I'd never had in my whole life. And he said, and I realized in that season that one day of favor is better than a thousand days of labor. And he said, within two years, I saw my ministry go from a hundred youth to a thousand youth. And God began moving and now he's not even in ministry full time. He's a businessman. He does amazing things and then he preaches on the side. It's like he has this crazy life, but one day of favor is better than a thousand days of labor. We'll probably have him here at some point. He's our buddy. He's crazy. He also about killed me in his BMW. Literally, it was like need for speed, drifting. <laughs> never mind. I shouldn't go into that. But uh, crazy man, but it marked me. The day he said that, I was like, I'll never forget that the rest of my life. One day of favor better than 1,000 days of labor. If we will respond to the call of Jesus and in the same way begin cultivating intimacy, yielding to him, learning how to pray, we will see the favor of God and we'll see things that we could have never done in our own strength happen time and time and time and time and time again. Amen? I'm gonna have Jordan come up. Um, we're just gonna create space and, and those that were pre-service prayer, you can come up as well. You can dim the lights a little bit. We're just gonna create a space to pray um, and respond. Um, to the Lord. And uh, when I'm finished praying, I'll just, uh, we'll kind of just do the soft close. So if you want to go home, you can go home. If you want to stay and pray, um, I know Jesus would like that. So, or you can go home and pray. But Lord, we want to see your revival. We want to see the awakening that's in your heart come to this land we want to see you heal our land and heal our families and heal our cities and heal our homes and heal everything that's broken God and so I pray that you captivate our hearts and I pray that you awaken and stir a deep and ferocious hunger for your presence like we've never known before. I pray God that as we come and as we pray in these seasons, you renew our mind about what prayer even is. That you weed out the the religious striving mindsets that we have about what it means to seek your face. Lord, and that you change it from a religion to a love affair in our minds and then that seeps into our hearts, God, and that will awaken the passion of our hearts that we were made for you. God, may we be a people who seek you and search for you with all our hearts. May we be a people that 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 turn and humble ourselves and repent of our own sins and the sins of our nation, God, and the sins of our city and, and pray in such a way that you hear from heaven and you respond and heal our lands. May we be a people, God, God, that are marked as a people of prayer, as a house of prayer for all nations. May we be a great Christians, Lord. May we be a great church that prays great prayers, that bring great awakening to those that we love, to those that are in need, to those that are longing for revelation. God, may we take the responsibility upon our own shoulders that not, we're not just waiting for something crazy to happen out there, or somebody to rise up and do something, or some president to come and bring salvation. You're a salvation was enough, Lord. You conquered sin by the blood of your cross and now you're just waiting for your people to say, here I am. I'll be your intercessor. I'll stand in the gap, Lord. I'll go where people won't go. I'll give you my heart. I'll let your compassion touch me and move me and change me in such a way that I pray and I pray and I pray to see your kingdom come and I pray to see your will be done and I don't stop praying. I don't stop when I don't see. I don't stop when I when 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 it seems discouraging or fatiguing, I just keep praying because we don't have a plan B, Lord. You only gave us one plan. It's to seek your face. Lord, give us eyes to see the times when we need to carve out space. Show us the things we need to say no to so that we still have our yes, we have the integrity of our yes to say to you, you're worth our best. You're worth our first. You're worth our passion. Mark us, Lord. Take a coal from your altar, God, and mark us that we be a people of first love. this in Jesus' mighty name.